to Micah chapter 6. As we've been working through the book of Micah, I've done my best to equip you with the ability to read not just Micah, but all the prophets. And we've listed quite a few different reasons why the prophets are hard to read. They're hard to read because the imagery they use is sometimes symbolic uh, and there's lots of metaphor. They're hard to read because they are extensively historical. And so they talk about places and times that you're not familiar with. And another thing that makes the prophets difficult is that their writing style is what we call recursive. Recursive means to go back to the beginning and tread the same ground again, okay? But not repetition. The prophets don't repeat themselves over and over. Every time they tread the same ground, they do it with a slightly different angle or from a slightly different perspective or involving a slightly different approach, okay? And so the value of that is kind of like stereo speakers. One speaker provides part of the music and then the other speaker provides a filling out or a rounding out or a fullness of the full sound, okay? And so this can be irritating because as we read first, they move on from topic to topic. They change from places to place. And then second, they come back to things they've already talked about. And so you're reading through Ezekiel and you're thinking, why are we talking about this again? Okay. But the thing that we need to learn is to recognize that the topic is, sa is the same, but the perspective is different. Now, why is this necessary? You're not going to like the answer. The reason it's necessary is because we are stubborn and hard of hearing. Okay? The, pro the prophets have a goal, and that goal is to convict us of sin and get us to change our behavior. But that's not an easy task. In fact, it's so difficult that when God calls Jeremiah, he says, no one will listen to you, but you're going to devote your whole life to this. Okay? There is a resistance, a stubbornness, a sin nature, a hardness of heart that we have that makes us not want to change our ways. We see this with Jesus, right? He tells parables, and the parables go right over people's heads, okay? Sometimes he speaks very frankly, and they misunderstand. So he uses metaphor, and they interpret the metaphor literally, right? What's going on there is not stupidity, it is the unwillingness to see, okay? It involves a desire not to truly know, to avert our eyes to the truth, to stay in the darkness, to plug our ears, okay? And so the amazing thing is knowing that that is the case, God consistently says, you're not getting it? Let me try it from a different angle. And it is amazing the number of approaches the prophets employ to get their, their uh, point across. Ezekiel's over here building a little toy city and staging an attack on Jerusalem as a physical demonstration of what's going on. 
Here he says, let's put it in the metaphor of marriage. You have been an unfaithful wife. Here he puts it in the metaphor of family. You have been a disobedient child. Here he puts it in the courtroom. And here he puts it in the big, cosmic, demonic, spiritual warfare category. It's all these different angles. And so Micah is doing the same thing. He's been talking about the injustice and oppression of Israel in every chapter of his book. And here he hits it again. But it's important for us to notice what's difference here, what's different here. And what I would suggest to you this morning is that here he does it through the lens of wisdom. Okay, last week it was through the lens of worship. This week we're looking at wisdom. Last week it focused on the temple. This week it focuses on the marketplace. Okay. Last week it focused on spirituality as we understand it. This week he focuses on practicality. Okay. And what he wants to suggest is that injustice isn't just wrong, it doesn't work. Okay. Which is incredible because I think we would all agree if something is wrong and if God is real, then that should be enough. But he says, well, let's get practical for a second. And let me tell you that what you think you're accomplishing doesn't work. Okay. So let's read together here, starting in verse 9. And for those of you who are more familiar with the Bible, as we read, I want you to just flag anything that seems like you would encounter it in the book of Proverbs, right? This classic wisdom text we have, the book of Proverbs. Notice how much the language is drawn from there. Verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not, persevere, or not preserve, and what you preserve, I'll give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And you shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Let's pray. God, we stand on the promise of your word again this morning, that the same spirit who spoke through Micah these words would also be our teacher and instructor this morning, and that the same spirit who sought to convict Israel of their sins through the words of Micah would also convict us this morning. We just ask, Lord, as we open your word, that we would hear your voice. And we know, Lord, that in many places we have locked the front door we are resistant to your truth. So we pray that you would come through the window. 
We pray that you would overcome our defenses. We pray, Lord, if there's places where we're fighting with you, you would win in Jesus' name. Amen. The amount of wisdom literature language and imagery in this passage really stands out. And we can see it in a couple of places. In fact, we see it in the opening sentence. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. Most of the book of Proverbs is bound up in these little proverbial sayings. But the introduction first talks about wisdom personified as a woman walking through the streets and saying, come, listen to me and live. And in the same way here, it's the voice of the Lord crying out in the city, just like Lady Wisdom here. And then it follows with the statement, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, in the practical mathematics of life, of how you make decisions, of how you determine what's good and what's bad, the most important constant to not forget, the most important piece of the equation is the reality of God. And the fool says in his heart, right, the contrast of wisdom and foolishness, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's not so much a statement about atheism as an ideology, as a way of thinking, as it is a statement about practical living. The fool is the one who lives as if God doesn't exist, would be a good paraphrase. But there's more wisdom literature. There's the mention here of the rod of him who appointed it. That's a reference to discipline, something that Proverbs spends a lot of time talking about. It talks here about a bag of deceitful weights. Remember that Israel's currency did not come from, you know, the mint in Jerusalem. And it was not backed by, by some sort of system. It was actually precious material, usually silver, weighed to a certain amount. And so its weight was its worth. And so what happened was that people realized by creating two separate sets of weights, they could increase their profit through deceit. Okay, and so you'd walk into the marketplace and you'd say, I need this amount of weight. And they'd put on the scales one weight to balance out the money and another weight to balance out the amount of grain that you were buying. But the grain one would be lighter and the money one would be heavier. So it would cost more silver to buy less wheat. Okay, it's cheating. It's just business scamming. Okay, that's all that this is. But it's also something that Proverbs talks about extensively okay Uh, even when it talks here about verse 16 you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab and you have walked in their counsels Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm and it opens this way blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and here the accusation is you're walking in their counsel but There's another reason why that is significantly a wisdom statement. In the days that Micah is writing, the house of Ahab, or the house of Omri, and the ideas of Ahab, they're long gone, and their consequences are evident to everybody. Omri was the line of kings that ruled over the northern tribes during the days of Elijah and Elisha. 
okay? You can read about it in First and Second Kings. And it was they that so misled Israel that ultimately God brought in Assyria and destroyed all of Israel. And so what he's saying here is, you know where this road leads, and yet you foolishly walking it, assuming the outcome will be different. Wisdom is all about observation. Wisdom is all about seeing how the world works and following in the same way. And here he says, you can't even learn from this example before you. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, God condemns the people of Judah, the southern tribes, because he compares it to a younger sister of the northern tribes who watched her life and how it ended up and went, that looks like a good idea, and walked in the thing. And he said, how are you not more culpable when you have exhibit A right in front, you, in front of you and you still go the way that you go? Okay, so from beginning to end, the emphasis here is on wisdom. Okay, and again, what Micah is trying to convey is not just that injustice is wrong, but that it doesn't work, okay? That it's foolish to pursue the ways of injustice. And the first thing we need to understand this morning is that it's not enough to see unjust practices or oppression as cheating and winning the game by cheating which is how I think we normally think of. It's when people take advantage of other people to get ahead. But Micah says, hold on a minute. Where does it actually get you? Right? That's what makes this a wisdom conversation. For example, when we talk about lying, we can talk about it as morally wrong. Okay? But we also have grown in a tendency, at least as modern Americans, to talk about lying as practically unhelpful, which is why we have a saying like, honesty is the best policy. The idea there isn't just that honesty is right, it's that honesty is productive, that in the long run, it's better for you and your career, it's better for you and your reputation, okay? Now, Sometimes we may have a tendency to think or even feel convicted that that's the wrong way to talk about wrong things. Like, why would we have to convince somebody that their evil is unpractical? But God has no reservations about that. He's fine having a wisdom conversation. His heart is to use any method possible, including, you really haven't thought this through. So let me remind you where these things are headed. Okay, And so he lays out here, as we've seen before, that the wealthy of Israel have made their wealth by taking advantage specifically of the poor and the vulnerable. Okay? And he talks about uh, two ways that this has happened. One we've already talked about, which is deceitful weights. Right? They're cheating their customers through their behavior. And the second, he says in verse 12, your rich men are full of violence. Okay. The idea here is that they are actually taking advantage or ruining people's lives to make their wealth. Okay. That it is actually, there's an actual death toll related to their rise in status. Earlier he related this to cannibalism, that they devour the weak and hungry 
by putting them on the streets, by using the courts, by bribing the judges, they cost people their very livelihoods and to some degree their lives, okay? And so all of that is present, but so is this other thing. And so here we get consequence in verse 13, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be a hunger within you. Now, I want you to notice what the consequence is here. It's going to lead, and we'll see this, it's going to lead to the same thing that happened to the northern tribes. Okay? Not in the hands of Assyria this time, but in the hands of Babylon. And we've talked about this almost every week. This is where Judah is headed. They're headed to being uh, destroyed as a community, exiled to Babylon, right? Everything's going to crumble. But when he starts here, he says, you will eat and not be satisfied. He doesn't deny that they're going to eat. He denies that it's going to be of any benefit to them, right? He doesn't deny that their table will be set with filet mignon, you know, and lobster thermidor. But he says, but you're not going to get any enjoyment out of it. Okay. And this is, this is the first level of wisdom. I want to talk about three levels of wisdom today. And the first one we'll just call surface wisdom, which is, do things do what you think they do? Okay. And here's the reason why injustice is unwise at the surface level. First, humanity was designed to flourish in community. And so although the Bible maintains personal rights and independent responsibility, it also puts a staggering amount of weight on the social reality of the nation of Israel and their unique or, or uh, unified responsibility to take care of one another. And the reason is because, as it says all the way back in the book of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone, okay? It's amazing how many social sins of the Bible, the ones that are against other people, we can just categorize as being antisocial. Okay? They push people away. They neglect people. They take advantage of people. They put yourself up by pushing others down. Right? They are against the community. And again, I think our primary way of thinking about injustice and oppression is that the end they're achieving is okay, wealth and status and these things, but the means is just like, you know, having an ace up your sleeve. It's cheating at the game, but they win the game, and that's what makes it so unfair, okay? But because humanity needs community, it doesn't work, okay? This is Citizen Kane. Right? This is every story we ever hear about the dissatisfaction of those who we would label achievers, who have gotten all of their dreams. What good, what good is wealth if you have no friends, and the supposed friends you do have, you don't trust, because they might take advantage of you in the same way that you took advantage of others. I remember seeing a Twilight Zone episode where there had been a revolution in a Cuba-like place, and the man had come into power, winning the revolution. And a woman comes and she gives him the gift of a mirror. And she says, this mirror will show you who your greatest enemies are. 
And when he looks in the mirror, he sees his closest cabinet members threatening his life. And so he takes them out one by one. But by the end of the episode, he comes to realize the only thing he's ever seen in the mirror is himself. Right? Because he took that office by deception and violence and betrayal. But now he's constantly afraid of deception and violence and betrayal. Okay? And so there's this surface level that wisdom doesn't work. It may need, lead to wealth, but it doesn't lead to health. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It doesn't lead to joy. Okay? But there's a second level of wisdom here, and that's the reality of discipline. Okay. When he says here, hear the rod and him who appointed it, basically he's saying, you can live your life and take advantage of other people, but you cannot live your life, take advantage of other people, and not have consequence. And the reason is, is twofold. One, in the biggest picture, and we'll return to this, it's because God is just, and he cares for the poor and the vulnerable and the weak. And he cares when they're taken advantage of. And he's angry in these issues. And justice will be done because he's a God, just God. But there's a second layer. Remember who God is talking to here. Not some nation who does not know him, but his own people in a covenant relationship with him, who he, as we saw last week, delivered out of Egypt who he has provided for, who he has spent years warning about where this path leads and being involved in their life, who identifies himself as the sole hand of blessing from whom all good things come. Okay. And so he says, if you're going to be disobedient children, I as a loving father am going to discipline you. Okay. Now those of you who are parents each probably have a story of when your child hilariously forgot that truth and thought that they could get away with something that they could not get away with just because they didn't include the disparity between their little existence and yours, okay? It doesn't matter if they hide something that can't be hidden uh, or if they think that they can you know, pull the wool over your eyes or even if they're just just a two-year-old, and they try and hide from your discipline by covering their eyes and saying, well, I can't see you, so you can't see me, right? That disparity, that difference, that silliness is also true in Israel. And so I believe it's Isaiah who puts it this way. It's as if the people say, God doesn't see any of this. You know, we lock away our cooked books, our second set of numbers. It's in a drawer. God will never know, right? It doesn't escape God and discipline discipline is the reality that God is interested in the character and quality of his people he's committed to it and so they may choose to go another way but just like uh, you know a pair of oxen who are moving off the course he's going to push them back that's why he says to Paul in the book of Acts it's hard for you to kick against the goads the goads are the spike of the plow so that the calf can't kick back and kick the person driving the plow. It's not any fun, and that's the point. As Matthew shared with us in our call to worship last week, looking in Hebrews, discipline is no fun at all, but it is evidence that we are God's children. Okay? 
And it's amazing. This is one of those things that's almost too deep for me to understand or articulate. But it's amazing how significant in the wisdom literature the father-son relationship is. It runs through the entire book. My son, listen to my counsel. Do not despise the discipline of your mother and father. Right? This is a major component. Okay? And so there is the unwisdom of practicality. It doesn't work. Injustice may get you ahead in life, but it won't get you life. Okay. Uh, not only that, but, but let's just think about, um, let's go back to that point and let me just illustrate it in one different way. Think about ecology, right? This recognition that we have that nature around us works in a way that, that is related to one another and all the pieces work together, okay? And so, for example, we bring pigs to Australia. There's never been pigs in Australia. Pigs discover something to eat that they've never had an opportunity to eat, which is turtle eggs. But because they eat all the turtle eggs, the turtles would normally eat the jellyfish. And now the jellyfish population explodes, and when we go into the sea, we get stung. Okay? That's ecology, right? It's that everything works together. Community, human community, human society has an ecology as well. And so you can actually, by disadvantaging a community, create a community of violence, a community of unsafety, a community of poor health, a community of all these things. And the truth is, just like ecology, you can't keep yourself from that because you live in the same world, okay? That's one of the emphases he's making here. And then the second one is the discipline. But there's one last category that we need to recognize in this passage this morning, and it's especially important to us as Christians. And it's the recognition here of what I would call deep wisdom. Most of what you read in Proverbs is observational in nature. Okay? This is how things normally work. If you're a lazy person, you'll run out of food. Right? Those are the types of things that Proverbs say. Okay? But when we deal with such practical issues, we need to recognize that not all wisdom is equal. And so the scriptures make a distinction between godly wisdom and ungodly wisdom. For example, Proverbs recognizes that a bribe will get things done. That is surface wisdom. It's just an observation. Proverbs recognizes if you have much money, you'll have much friends. But if you just take that at face value, you would think, all right, well, wealth is a way to good relationship, but that's not what it means. The deeper wisdom is if you have much money, you'll have much, air quotes, friends, right? Suddenly there will be people around you all because of the wealth, right? Probably no place recognizes this better than the book of James, okay? James recognizes the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. Okay. Listen to what he says here in James chapter 3. This is what he says in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice what he does here. He contrasts two different wisdoms. In other words, James recognizes what we sometimes hear when they say, you just don't understand the way the world works, right? And there are many people who would boast in the fact that they know how to play the game, that they know how to get ahead. And those people are also using wisdom. One of the things that disturbs me the most about about the realities of sex trafficking and things like this is the psychological ability of those who abuse women. It's, It's a science and one that is incredibly compelling, but you won't buy the book online, How to Be a Sexual Abuser, right? There's an intuition and a skill to learning how to take advantage of people. And most of the time, it's learned behavior. They learn it from another abuser, right? And yet its effectiveness is incredible. Their ability to recognize those who are most vulnerable to it, to say the right things at the right time, to set up a scenario, to impose shame so that they can't walk away from these things, for them to lose hope, it's all engineered. And in that sense, it is wisdom, but demonic wisdom. Okay. That's what James is emphasizing here. And, and that is how I anticipate many of the wealthy in Israel would, would say, they would say, but you don't understand, this is just the way of the market. Or they'll say things like, those who I take, take advantage of deserve to be taken advantage of because they're not smart enough to spot a scam. Or they'll say, look, This is the only way to get ahead in life. Now, especially important for us, because when we read about false weights and measures, or even when we read about the wealthiest of the wealthy taking advantage in the court systems of the poor, we can easily distance ourselves from that and say, that's not really talking to me. That's why James is so important, because he says, here's how you can recognize demonic wisdom in your life. It's fueled by selfish ambition and jealousy. Okay. In other words, it looks around and it says, first and foremost, how can I, singular, get ahead? What can I do to move forward in my career? What can I do to advance in these things? What can I do to, uh, you know... Um, to prepare for the future, and it's very self-oriented. And you need to hear this morning that in the deep wisdom way, it doesn't work, and I'll show you why in just a second. But the other one he gives is jealousy, which is comparative and competitive, right? It looks around at others, and it says, I want what they have. And this is the most fascinating thing. When we make movies that are tales of warning 
about those who succeeded so much that it destroyed them, like Gordon Gecko, like Wolf of Wall Street. Almost always there is this counter-reality where the way it's received is to idolize those figures, right? And we see all of the death and despair and we see all these things and yet we go, wow, I want to be like that. How does that happen? How are we so blind that we cannot see the whole story or that we think we can avoid the worst of it but get there on the same path? It's because jealousy blinds us. It's because we see the story and instead of noticing the worst parts of it, even the filmmakers, I would suggest to you, even the storytellers end up idolizing and therefore highlighting these things. And so we need to watch for those places in our life where our heart is consumed with jealousy. And that jealousy may be fueled by the shallow wisdom that says, oh, look, this is how they became an influencer and became all of these things and just going through the steps, just applying the formula, walking in their footsteps, learning from their example. But there is the deeper wisdom. Okay. And again, Although James just says, this one is heavenly, this one is godly, and this one over here is evil, he doesn't stop there. By using wisdom language, he's, Im- he's implying this one works, this one doesn't. This one makes sense, this one is short-sighted. And it brings us back to the beginning. What is it that deeper wisdom relies on? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, it is totally possible for you to have your five-year plan or your 10-year plan and not plan for after your funeral. It is totally possible for you to have the foresight to see where everything leads and achieve all of it and not recognize its eternal consequence. Jesus warned about this. In fact, the only parable he tells where he identifies a man as a fool, as foolish, is about a man who has such a good year economically that he has an abundance of crops. And he thinks, what am I going to do about this? And he thinks, I know, I will build more barns so I can store all the resources and never want again. In other words, he goes, you know what I could do right now? Early retirement. But what he doesn't know is that God is going to take him. His life is going to end in the next 24 hours. Which means those barns, not only will they never be emptied by his need, but they'll never even be built. And he says, you fool. Do you not know that your soul is required of you tonight? See, in the world that we live in and in the wisdom of this world, your wealth is a badge of honor, of success, of achievement. But it is very possible that before the Lord, it is an evidence of guilt. And that's what was forgotten. This deeper wisdom is counterintuitive because it goes against the grain of the world we live in. And this is why in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he opens up by describing those who are blessed 
and all of them don't make sense to us. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, right? Not those who wage war. In every place you go, really? But that's deep wisdom blessing. That's where life is, and not just where life will be. It's not just blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not just this future reality, hey, live right now, and it'll all work out in the end. There's also a recognition that the blessing is present tense, and that it's even enjoyed present tense. And Jesus doesn't end there. He opens the sermon with an explanation of a life that works, the blessed life, the abundant life, the good life, if you will. And he closes with a story. This is his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you about two men who both built a house. He says, and one built a house on shifting sand. And when the storm came, the house fell down. But the other built his house on a solid foundation. And when the storm came, it withstood the storm. And he says, the one who builds on the rock is the one who listens to my word and does it. But the fool builds on the sand, right? He makes a contrast there between wisdom and foolishness. Okay. It is tremendously practical, but it is totally, completely theological. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom recognizing that God is present and watching and just changes our decision-making in life, okay? And so here, Micah lays out three layers of why the so-called wisdom of the world doesn't work, why oppression and injustice, or, or again, let's bring it back for us, the ways of jealousy and the ways of selfish ambition doesn't work. And I want to review them one more time. One, because they don't get you what, they think, what you think they get you. None of us are interested in money because we have an obsession with green paper. We think if we have money, it will lead to these other things. It's a means. But it doesn't get us what we think it does, especially when the way we get there is the wrong way, okay? And so it decays the community that we need to flourish. It isolates us from the people that we're actually seeking to impress, right? So there's that first layer. The second is, and this is specifically for us who are the children of God, who are Christians, it assumes that you can get away with something when you can't because your heavenly Father sees all you do and you can't hide from him what you can hide from the government by not paying your taxes. Or what you can hide from, you know, uh, your employees by, by the way that you avoid a law that they would be ignorant of, but you know very well. Or that you could hide from your customer because you use just slightly cheaper products. Or you cut corners on your construction like that apartment building in Florida. Why do people make those choices? Because they think that they are good for them. But God sees and God knows. And one of the evidences of the fact that we're God's children is that he doesn't let us get away with things. Which is why I'm convinced that there are all sorts of awful things happening in the world that go hidden 
and in the church, it doesn't seem like they ever get away with it, right? That's why we're on the news so much. It's because God cares about the church. And then there's this third layer. It's the wisdom of heaven. It's the deep wisdom. It's the wisdom that looks at the same circumstances and does the equation in a completely different way because God is real and there will be an accounting. Okay. Let's pray.